Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, A Firm Grip on the Gospel, with a message titled, From Obscurity to Prominence. So turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, verses 18 to 38, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. In Luke 3.23, Luke tells us that when Jesus began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age. Luke doesn't say that Jesus was 30. He says he was close to 30, not close to 20, not close to 40, but in the vicinity of 30. And if my calculations are right, that is regarding Jesus' birth, I would think that Jesus was at that time either 32 or 33. That means that for the first over 30 years of his life, Jesus lived in obscurity. Nazareth, although today it has a population of over 75,000, in the time of Jesus would have had less than 500. It was just a small village, not noteworthy. So is it really possible that all that Jesus was doing in those days was running a carpenter business? You know, with the wisdom that he displayed in the temple at the age of 12, doesn't that seem insignificant? And of this matter, theories abound. I mean, some have supposed that he traveled going as far as India. And of course, there's not one shred of evidence that that's true. Such ideas are in some cases wishful thinking, in other cases, an attempt to portray Jesus as someone who is influenced by Hinduism. And of course, anyone who's ever studied the Gospels carefully will recognize that Jesus is thoroughly Jewish. He adheres to the law of God, and the first law of God is, you shall have no other gods. And that brings us back to the years before Jesus' public ministry and what he was doing then. And the honest answer is that we have no historical information about this at all. And the most likely scenario is that Joseph, his father, died before Jesus' public ministry began. And I say that because of several telltale signs in the gospel. One example is what Matthew mentions in Matthew 13, 55 to 56. People were saying, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get these things? Notice they mention Mary, the four brothers, and a number of sisters, but they don't mention Joseph by name, and the reason must be that Joseph is no longer there. And so the likely scenario is that Jesus, being the oldest of a large family, did what any Jewish son would have done. He would have shouldered the large part of the duty as son to make sure the family survived after dad died. And so by the time of the beginning of Christ's public ministry, his brothers would then have been in a place to also shoulder some responsibility. But the text also indicates that Mary was never far away, even when Jesus was doing his public ministry. See, in John 2, John the Apostle records Jesus' first miracle, which was that he changed the water into wine. Now, that happened at a wedding, and John says that the mother of Jesus, that is Mary, tells Jesus they've run out of wine. So clearly there's Mary, and she's within the vicinity of Jesus and the disciples. At another time, we might remember that Mary and Jesus' brothers were trying to speak to him. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell of that incident and that they couldn't get access to him because of the crowds. But the most telling story is what happened at the cross. Jesus is hanging there and dying, and Mary, his mother, is there. John, the disciple, is there as well. And in John 19, 26, we read, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. 
And so John took care of Mary and would have taken her with him as he ministered in the city of Ephesus, where tradition tells us that Mary eventually died. And and why do I mention all this? Well, I do so because I want to give the impression that as a young man, Jesus was not free to travel at all, but rather his family duty as the firstborn was to care for his widowed mother. And the care continued even throughout his public ministry. It was an obligation he always bore. And so the scenario of the years when Jesus lived in obscurity is now plain. As an obedient and loyal son, he cared for his mother as well as his younger half-siblings. He bore that responsibility early, and as we like to say, he didn't have the time to enjoy a carefree childhood, but rather he would have known that responsibility very early. We're studying the book of Luke. And we've come to Luke chapter 3. So let's read verses 18 to 20. So with many other exhortations, he, that is John the Baptist, preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So Luke's still speaking about the ministry of John the Baptist, and John has now been preaching for some time. We remember he began to preach, Luke tells us, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. That would be the year AD 29. And from John the Apostle's gospel, we learn that Jesus' public ministry lasted three years. And from my investigation, I think the year of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection was the year 33. And that would indicate that John had been preaching for a year when Jesus began his public ministry. And so Luke, rather than giving us more details as to how after Jesus began his public ministry, the crowds shifted over from John the Baptist to Jesus, Luke simply sums up the ministry of John the Baptist by saying that eventually Herod would lock him up in prison. And we know the reason for that. It's because John had denounced Herod's marriage, in which Herod had become infatuated with his brother's wife, and so Herod divorced his wife, And she, that is Herodias, divorced her husband, and the two married each other. And John, the man preaching repentance, demanded that Herod repent of this adulterous sin. Apparently, you know, John had not heard the contemporary saying that we ought to have the freedom to love whomever we want. Or the other saying that the heart wants what the heart wants. You know, John believed with Jeremiah the prophet that the heart was desperately deceitful. The heart needed to be called upon to repent of its never-ending wickedness. Well, Herod was having none of that, and he urged on by his new wife, he had John imprisoned. Luke simply collapses the entire story into one line, telling us that in the providence of God, John the Baptist was slowly moving off the stage, and Jesus was destined to be on that stage by himself. Luke then steps back and tells us the one shocking thing that many Bible students have puzzled over for centuries. Luke 3, 21 to 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him on bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. And so let's begin with the most obvious of all questions. I mean, why was Jesus baptized? Other gospel writers include the fact that John himself was shocked by this. He had told Jesus that he, that is John, should have been baptized by Jesus. But Jesus had insisted saying that it was necessary to fulfill all righteousness. But what righteousness could be fulfilled since Jesus had committed no sin? 
See, this was a baptism as a sign of repentance, an acknowledgement of the need to be forgiven, and Jesus needed none of that. Indeed, he's the only person in all of history that should not have been baptized by John. And the answer to the question, indeed, is that the only answer that I think makes sense, since the baptism signified the need for cleansing, Jesus' act of baptism was a vicarious action taken on behalf of those he had come to save. In John 1.29, John the Apostle tells of the time when John the Baptist saw Jesus and he announced, you know, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist knew it, and Jesus did as well. Jesus had come to be the Lamb of God who would take upon himself the role of the sin-bearer of the world. And so because Jesus was the Lamb who was our sin substitute, Listen, when Jesus was baptized, he was baptized on our behalf. Because, my dear listener, hear me now. You and I have sinned. John the Baptist had announced that you and I are unworthy of the coming of the Messiah. We needed to be baptized by John as well. And Jesus was baptized on our behalf. Of course, there's still, you know, a Christian baptism that we must undergo after our conversion. But Christian baptism is different from John's baptism. So as Jesus was baptized, says Luke, the heavens were opened at such a holy moment. The Holy Spirit, who has no bodily form, assumed the form of a dove, signifying purity and gentleness, descended on Jesus, indicating that he had come to empower Jesus with the mission that was now before him. And God the Father spoke, you're my beloved son. I'm well pleased with you. You're the object of my delight. It's been shown on numerous occasions there's a Trinitarian thing happening here. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The three are one God, and yet they are three distinct persons. That is, we must never confuse the three persons of the Trinity. Many a heresy has taught that the three persons who make up the one God are interchangeable. Clearly, they're not. There is only one God. The Father is God. The Son is the one God. The Spirit is the one God. But the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. And the Son is not the Father or the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Each is a unique person. And the three are, in fact, the one God. God sees every day that is to come. More so, he steers time and space towards his purposes. Not only are our times in his hands, but his hand touches everything and everyone. That's the theme of Dr. John Neufeld's new book. Back to the Bible Canada is pleased to present In All Things, God's Providence. In this 190-page text, Dr. John teaches the providence of God. His book traces the thread of God's constant engagement with creation. Rather than a dry doctrine, Dr. John demonstrates how God's providence is the hope, comfort, and confidence for us all. So, for this month only, we want to make In All Things available at an exclusive feature price of only $5. Or if you prefer ebooks, you'll be able to download the digital copy for free at backtothebible.ca. To purchase your copy today, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. As Luke tells the story of Jesus, he now moves from the ministry of John the Baptist to the ministry of Jesus. 
And like Matthew, Luke thinks, if you're going to tell the story properly, you got to start it with a genealogy. <laughs> what I'm about to read, please don't let your eyes glaze over. Yeah, it contains a great many names you're not going to recognize, and we might wonder why it's there in the first place, but please bear with me. This is very important, so take a deep breath. Yeah, here we go. Luke chapter 3, 23 to 38. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mephat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mephat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Metatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hetzron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalael, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. <laughs> That's quite a list. It goes from Jesus and works its way back to Adam, the first human being. Now, as was the custom of the day, it's not a complete list. The list could have been longer, but the words the son of can also mean the ancestor of. So Luke's list contains most of the names. There are 77 of them. And that takes us to the book of Matthew, and that list only contains 42 names. And furthermore, that's not the only difference. Most of the names in Matthew's genealogy are different from the ones in Luke. So what's going on? And why did Luke and the Holy Spirit who inspired him give us a different list on the genealogy of Jesus? Now, of course, the skeptics argue that the two lists simply can't be reconciled. And so either one of them, either Luke or Matthew is simply wrong, or perhaps maybe both of them are wrong. But since both lists are so extensive, even if you argue that they're wrong, you still have to answer the question, where in the world did these lists come from? So let's look at some of the differences between the two lists, and I'll, and I'll get to the most obvious difference in just a little bit. But notice that in Matthew, the list moves from the early ancestors forward to Jesus, and Luke, Luke begins with Jesus and then moves backward. Second, in Matthew, Matthew only takes the reader to Abraham, whereas Luke takes the reader all the way back to Adam. And the reason for that difference should be obvious. Matthew is writing for a primarily Jewish audience. Luke is writing for a primarily Gentile audience. And so Luke wants to point out that Jesus comes from the human race. And as such, what he has to say needs to be heard, not just by the Jews, but by the entire human race. Now, let's get now to the major difference. In Matthew, Joseph is called the husband of Mary, to whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. And in Matthew, the father of Joseph is a man named Jacob. But in Luke, we're told that Jesus was supposed by people to be the father of Jesus. The wording is slightly different. 
And Matthew merely says that Joseph is the husband of Mary, and Luke says Joseph was assumed to be the father of Jesus. So we know that both Matthew and Luke have already made it clear that Joseph isn't the actual father of Jesus. As both gospel writers mention, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so we might argue that both Matthew and Luke have in their own ways indicated that Joseph is not the natural father. But Luke is more explicit than Matthew. It's as if Luke is saying, everyone out there thought that Jesus was the son of Joseph. And when I write this genealogy, I'm going to say, you know, for instance, that Heli was the son of Mephat, and that Mephat was the son of Levi, and so forth. But when it comes to Jesus, Luke says, I'm not going to say that Jesus was the son of Joseph. I'm only going to say that Jesus was thought to be the son of Joseph. And the way this is worded has led a great many Bible teachers to argue that Luke is signaling that the genealogy he's giving is really not the genealogy of Joseph at all, but it's Mary's genealogy. Matthew traces Jesus through Joseph, who adopted him, and proves that Jesus is in line for the kingdom of David. But Luke traces the genealogy through Mary, and there also we find that Jesus is also a direct descendant of David. Now, this may answer the question of the differences between these two lists, but there are those who deny that Luke is giving us a genealogy of Mary. I mean, for one, Luke never mentions Mary, and that's strange because as we read through Luke, we're going to note that Luke is at pains often to mention the women in the life of Jesus. I mean, why not mention Mary right here? The fact that Luke doesn't mention Mary makes one wonder if this can be a genealogy of Mary at all. And that's not the final thing to consider. Many have argued that since Joseph is not the genealogical father of Jesus, why then would Luke give a lengthy genealogy of the man who was only supposedly the father of Jesus? You see, that doesn't completely add up. And moreover, if we go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 26 and following, When Gabriel the angel was sent to Mary to announce to her the miraculous conception of her son, verse 32 says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. That is, Mary is told Jesus is in fact a direct ancestor of David. And furthermore, in Luke 1.69, Zechariah the priest also praises God for the coming of the Messiah, who says, is born into the house of David. And that brings us to one more detail. The Jewish Talmud says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was the daughter of Heli. Now, that could only be correct if the genealogy in Luke is, in fact, traced through Mary. So go back to Luke 1.23. Luke says that Jesus was thought to be the son of Joseph and then doesn't say that he was then also thought to be the son of Heli. See, we know from Matthew that the father of Joseph was a man named Jacob. And so we assume then that Jesus on his adopted father's side had a grandfather named Jacob. And it seems likely then that on his mother's side, he had a grandfather named Heli. So then it seems to me it's logical, and the explanation here is simple, that Luke is giving us the genealogy of Mary, and Matthew is giving us the genealogy of Joseph. And if that's correct, that would mean that on both his father and his mother's side, the genealogy goes all the way back to David, and that means that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of the prophecies in the Old Testament, either way you slice it. 
Now, there are other differences in Matthew and Luke's list. Matthew follows the lines of the kings, and he traces David's line through Solomon. Luke traces it through Nathan. All sorts of theories about why that's the case. But the great difference remains that Matthew stops at Abraham, Luke stops at Adam. And that tells me of something that Luke once recorded in the book of Acts. Paul's preaching in the city of Athens, and here's what he says. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God made all the nations, and all the nations have one common ancestor, and Jesus, whom Luke will constantly remind us is the Son of Man, shares fully in our humanity. And therefore, since God sent him to be our Savior, it makes sense that he has come not just from Israel, but that he has come from the entire human race. Luke has, in his accurate account of Jesus, transitioned us from the ministry of John the Baptist and the impact that he has on Israel. But he also wants to make sure that we understand this is the one who has come for the human race. It's so important to tell the story this way. Jesus, as Luke tells us, appeared suddenly on the stage from Nazareth, a town that produced no world leaders. And in Israel, among the Jews, came one who stepped not only on the stage of Israel, but on the stage of the world. From over 30 years of obscurity to just three years of prominence, suddenly in those three years, this became the defining moment in the history of the world. Thanks so much, John. Now, before we move on to next week, remind us, what is so important about this genealogy? Yeah, I know, um, mostly, I think the Western mind especially, looks at these genealogies as something that's not significant at all because we tend to, I think, in the West, downgrade the importance of family and extended family. Jews didn't do that. They thought in those terms. But also, I mean, we have these genealogies that remind us that Jesus is the fulfillment of that which is promised. The Messiah couldn't be just anybody. He had to come from the right family line. It's one of the ways that we can tell that we have the Messiah. If he's got the wrong genealogy, it's not him. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us next week as we continue our series in the book of Luke, A Firm Grip on the Gospel, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Want to receive all the latest from Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt, directly to your inbox? Want to be the first to know of all the upcoming ministry events and initiatives? Then be sure to subscribe to our email list to receive our daily audio mail and monthly update emails. Every weekday, you'll receive an email containing links to all the newest audio messages from Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt and each month you'll receive the ministry update email containing exclusive first look insights and special ministry features. To subscribe, visit backtothebible.ca and at the bottom of the homepage, you'll find the sign up form. Or if you prefer, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. And if you're able, please consider a gift to help ensure all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, all of its resources, continue to be made available across this country.